everyone, welcome to another episode of Life, about life with Caleb and Ellen. But today we're doing things a bit different. No Caleb. We've got Andrew today, guest host. Yay, lucky me. Hello, everybody. Um, so, yeah, it's been a busy week for me, as I mentioned. Um, uh, a bit of update on work, probably for you as well, as I got approached by a company today and um, remote first. And I already got the green light from the hiring manager. And uh, yeah, I just need to pass this last phase. And potentially they might even pay me more than that three-month contracting. Nice. So this is a different one again from what we had been talking about previously? Yeah, yeah. Um, So the talent acquisition actually had a chat with me this morning and Mm -hmm. was like, oh, so what range did you want? And And he said, oh, you put down 120 to 140. Hmm. This is USD, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. And um, I said, yeah. And he said, oh, yep, look, that's bang smack in the middle of what we're going to offer. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I probably, I've also offered people more than that. I mean, they can offer you more than that. Like, I think you let them, you know, who are you to say no? Like, don't, don't stifle another person's generosity, right? Oh, definitely not. Hmm. Of course Hmm. not. So just rude. Yeah, absolutely rude. So that's what's going on in my life lately that's cool it's been a crazy week yeah um but speaking of crazy week um russia what's that going how's that going right now (laughs) wow nice segue um well i think the thing with countries like that excuse me i'm half eating at the same time i know it's very rude of me um is there's the official story and then there's the unofficial story mm-hmm. and you usually only get the full picture about that kind of stuff long after the fact, um, especially if there ends up being big changes. And I think um, Ukraine's best hope for the most, what shall we say, the cleanest resolution to this whole conflict is that there's some kind of internal thing in Russia that topples Putin in some way. Because I think Putin's the kind of guy who's so far all in that like, he's never going to back down. Um, and if he's too backed into a corner, he might do something crazy. So um, the cleanest exit is no more Putin uh, from a Ukraine point of view. But I don't know if uh, that's reasonable to hope for or not. Yeah, because we spoke about this earlier, right? Like um, over the weekend about how Russia would Russia be the next North Korea, which is one mm. of one of Caleb's theories is that Russia is just going to retreat and then just become, well, what's the word reclusive, basically mm-hmm. shield it off from the rest of the world again. And, you know, go back to the Stalin, Stalin era, um, which you think is unlikely. Yeah. I think once you've tasted what the rest of the world has to offer, it's very hard to go back. And the thing about North Korea is I've never known anything different, at least for, I mean, what the Korean War was the 50s, right? So you've got 70 odd years. And back then, Korea was very much a developing country as well. So they've never had wealth. They've never had prosperity. They've never had freedom of movement around the whole world. I mean, you know, airline travel, international airline travel was not a thing for most people in 1950. So when you get shut off from that, you don't know what you're missing. Whereas Russia has had a measure of that. And there's certainly a very wealthy contingent within Russia that would be very sad if they were suddenly unable to access that kind of stuff. Um, The thing with Russia that I've learned in the last little while, though, is that except for a period in the 1990s, about 10 years, they've basically only ever had authoritarian leadership. So the kind of guy that Vladimir Putin is, as much as it's kind of a shock to us if we had somebody like that in New Zealand, Australia, or the US, um, it's not unusual for Russian people. They've had that for over 100 years. Um, more than that, really, if you consider the Tsars before that. So as much as we'd like to say maybe they could have a change, um, I don't know, again, if they have a concept of what that could look like or even have an appetite for it. So it goes into black swan territory, right? Like who could really predict what could happen? Black Swan Territory, what is, I've no, I don't know what that means. Oh, you don't so, heard that before? No. So this guy called um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb wrote a book called The Black Swan. And it's just this idea of how we are very bad at randomness 
that, that life is unpredictable and we don't like it. And often the things that catch us out are the things that nobody saw coming. Um, so we tend to look back at history, think of the worst example of something and be like, okay, that's as bad as it gets. Uh, so for example, when they had the uh, Fukushima uh, nuclear reactors in Japan, they were built to withstand the force of the biggest, the largest recorded earthquake up till that day. And then what happened? They got hit by one bigger that they never saw coming. And they're like, oh my God, how did this happen? Like we never, you know, whatever. It's all unpredictable. No one could have known, blah, blah, blah. Um, so his point is that that kind of thing happens again and again throughout our lives individually and also in societies. It's the, it's the thing that you never saw coming. And so how do you prepare for that? Right? Like 9-11 is probably a great example. Nobody, nobody saw that coming. Nobody had the mechanisms in place to protect for that. And so instead, it was the idea of building what he calls an anti-fragile uh, approach to the world where you've got the ability to go stronger through challenges and difficulty, that you're not fragile so that if something unpredictable happens, it completely takes you out. So when I talk about uh, the Black Swan Territory in Russia, it's entirely possible that the way this gets resolved is in a way that none of us have ever seen before. Hmm. So if you say, what could that look like? I mean, we, we literally don't know. Mm. I mean, we know that a lot of people are just falling out of windows, right? Just accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sudden rush on like basement apartments, right? Like all the wealthy people are moving into the basement and sending all the poor people up to the rooftop. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, just, you know, people are just jumping out of windows. You don't know why. Yeah. It's a mystery. It's a complete mystery. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, I don't know. I think I'm optimistic to think that the Russian people would maybe rise up. But then, like you said, you know, if they're mm. so used to that. And it's like that analogy, um, the Greek analogy, right? Like if all you see, if, if you've been living in a cave for the most of your life and all you see is moving shadows and then all of a mm. sudden you're put outside of that cave and you see everything that's out there. Um, mm. And then you come back in again and you're telling your friends they can't see that. Sure. Yeah. 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 They're not got no concept of it. Now, what I would say is that if you actually look at the history of most revolutions, although they can often be portrayed as an uprising of the people, most revolutionary leaders are usually upper middle class people. So, you know, comparative to their society. So Mao, for example, was not just a peasant out in the field somewhere. You know, he was a, a law student and he's from a relatively wealthy family by the standards of the day. Uh, Lenin was the same. So this idea that an uprising of the people is a grassroots roots movement is often incorrect. And you tend to have somebody who is from upper middle class connections who rallies the people and then that's what becomes the genesis for this kind of change. So in, in Russia, you've got Alexei Navalny, who is the de facto leader of the opposition, as such as there is in Russia. So he'd be a good example of that kind of guy. Uh, I'm not saying that he will be at the forefront of this kind of thing. It might be somebody else entirely. Um, but this is where I think trying to sever Russia from the rest of the world will affect the kind of class of person who tends to be the incubator of your revolutionary. And then it'll look like, wow, the people rose up. Is it yeah, to a to a point. But they tend to have somebody from a, an upper middle class background who is the fulcrum of that kind of thing. Mm. Also just sort of like thinking about revolutions back in the day are different compared to now. Like now we have the internet and sure. how people assemble. Mm. Which probably is a good segue in terms of revolutions to Iran, right? Like mm. what what is going on right now over there? Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people know that. Was it back in the seventies or fifties that they were actually quite? Yeah, they were more like Western countries, right? Oh, it's incredible. Nineteen seventy nine was the Islamic Islamic Revolution, and if you find photos online, it, yeah, it's incredible. It looks like it could be in the US like even in terms of fashions and things like that, um, which is not to say that everything was great in Iran. I mean, one of the reasons they had that revolution was because of uh, meddling from US governments and British governments and those sorts of things. So it's often, I don't know, ironic is maybe the wrong word to use, but when you hear 
Western powers talk about why does Iran hate us so much? And it's like literally not that hard to figure out. Like we literally went in there, we propped up the most horrific people to be the leaders of the country because they gave the West access to oil. And like Iran didn't even own its own oil. Oh, did it not? No. So one of the things that the Islamic Revolution did was nationalize the nation's oil supply because it was, you know, British and American interests who were controlling all of it, siphoning all the wealth out of the country and then propping up the Shah of Iran, who was this horrific guy. But he was at least more socially liberal. So, you know, there's that. Um, But to understand then why those parts of the world literally hate America, it's not just because they're Islamic fundamentalists per se. It's also because in many, in many ways, the Western world earned that kind of reputation in that part of the world. Mm. Yeah. And I also talk, you know, we were talking about this again over the weekend about superpowers, sure. right? Like mm-hmm. we talk about US meddling, UK meddling, mm. but with the turn of it, well, with what's going on right now, right? Like mm. um, a lot of conversations around new, U.S. not being the superpower that it is anymore. Yeah. And, you know, in our last podcast, we sort of talked about this, which is Ray Dalio's, what's that book mm. again? Um, Navigating the New World Order. Yeah. And I think there's a sense of, I think when people read that, they go, oh, so what, U.S. US is just going to disappear overnight. Like hmm. It's just not going to exist anymore. But like a thought came to my mind the other day as you know we were out and i was thinking that doesn't seem right like us won't just disappear overnight like sure as you said you know uk is it was the world dominating power mm. uh, in some sense it's still up there quite high i mean until yeah, definitely liz trust sort of like stuffed that up <laughs> um but you know it didn't disappear overnight it's still mm. some sort of power within the world yeah. And so yeah. I think all these conversations or almost like fear propaganda again, right? Around mm, mm. Oh, US is going to fall, blah, 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 blah. Sure. I just don't think, I'm not saying that Ray Dalio is doing this. Obviously, you have to go read the book to know. I haven't personally read it. I only watched the video. But mm. I do think that people need to have a better understanding of what that actually means. Um, but I want to get your opinion on who you think would be the next superpower and what they would look like. Mm. Yeah, I mean, very interesting and great observation as well, I think. You're right, because Britain didn't disappear um, and they're still incredibly wealthy by world standards. I mean, let's talk relative terms here. And I think also, as much as America seems to be a culture in decline, and I say this, uh, Ray Dalio, again, lays this out a lot better in his books, but if you just look at the cohesiveness of american society um i would say too there's a bit of recency bias though going on like we say oh america used to be so much more you know united than they are now and you go well i mean the civil rights movement in the 60s wasn't that long ago Mm. uh and you can't tell me they were like super united back then (laughs) um they've had moments in their history and of course the american civil war so Sometimes we think, oh, yeah, they used to all be singing Kumbaya together back in the 50s and 60s, and now they all hate each other. So I don't think it's quite that extreme, but they certainly, it's a long way of saying I do think they are maybe beneath their prime in terms of their social cohesion. Um, I think it's important to remember, too, what a massive head start America has on the rest of the world economically. Mm. Like, even if America really tanks, like their GDP compared to any other nation, like in terms of the wealth that they generate is astronomical Mm. and you know china requires a population four times larger to still not be anywhere near what america is producing that's true i never thought of that so like even though america might be declining like they are still like i don't know if you've seen these videos around um of mike tyson in the gym at like 54 at the Mm. moment like you know doing pad work and it's like yeah that's you know even if that's like that's all even if it's Mike Tyson, it's still at 54. It's, it's, it's still Mike Tyson um, yeah. compared to what, you know? So uh, we, we might have longer in this transition, transition period than we realize. Again, it could be a black swan. You know, we look at the way these patterns go in the past and we say like, oh, that's the way it's going to look in the future. We don't, we don't know that. Maybe America as we know it changes somehow. Mm. I don't know. 
We can't say it'll never happen. It might too. Um, but to your main question, I, I'm very curious about India mm. because there's something about an authoritarian state that is not conducive to long-term prosperity. Uh, and this is when I, so when I'm talking about China here, if you look at what Xi has done in his time as the, I don't know what his official title is. Like a party leader. Uh, yeah, but he's effectively the president of China, right? I don't know what yeah. effectively it's leader for life is basically his, his thing, yeah. but he's reigned back so many freedoms and, 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 you know, China opening up to the world that was, I think more Deng Xiaoping yeah. um, before him. Now, just in terms of basic principles about how to get the best productivity out of people, you know, people who have freedom, the ability to choose, make choices, try things, be entrepreneurial, they innovate, they grow, they develop stuff. And he's been clamping down, clamping down, clamping down. So you stifle your opportunity. You know, he's doing it all in the name of control. And that's generally what these guys tend to do. If you look at Putin, that's kind of what he's done in Russia as well. And what has happened as a result, you know, decline, 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 decline. That is the story of the Soviet Union. Um, and in fact, if anything, because China's always been a student of Russia and Mao was obsessed with impressing the Soviet Union. That's one of the reasons behind the uh, famines with the Great Leap Forward. He wanted to show mm. Russia, look how much stuff we can produce killed millions of his own people in the process. Um, but they've always been watching Russia and they saw what happened with Russia in the 90s and went, whoop, that could be us. Mm. What are we going to do about it? So they adapted to this kind of hybrid-esque model, which actually in terms of just general living standards in America, in America, in China, has been wildly successful. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at the standard of living in China on average has has massively increased from a material standpoint. But there's still... You know, that's, but that's been clamped down on again, you know, and yeah. China is working towards being an international pariah again. If it wasn't for Russia, it would still be China on everybody's uh, forefront of everyone's minds. Contrast that with India, um, still very much a growing world power, a massive population base, huge problems, huge problems to try and sort out. Um, but it's like... <laughs> I was watching this thing the other day. This guy was talking about um, people who work out and want to lose body fat. And they said how the challenge is exponential. You know, it's harder to go from 12% uh, to 10% than it is to go from 22% to 20%. Yeah. You know? Uh, but what that means, to my mind at least, in an economic perspective, is it's way easier for places like India to experience exponential improvement than it is you know, for, for India to improve 5% versus America to go up 5%, way harder for America, mm. way harder for China um, than India. And again, they have the population base. They also have the, technologic, uh, the technological foundation. We know that Indian IT is um, very well established. Mm. Um, it's an incredibly scalable thing to be good at. You know, once you've got the, the stuff, that is where... The money is if you can be good at computers then party on yeah. and certainly china is good at that as well i don't want to take anything away from that um but i'd love to hear some thoughts from people who know more about indian culture and how it is or is not developing because there seems to be uh, well i hesitate to say a lot more liberal it's it's not like don't don't him you know hear me wrongly in that but it seems to be slightly more open than China. Like you're at least less mm. likely to be disappeared um, in India. So oh, yeah. that that could be again the next world power, and they have they have improved drastically. Um, China could fumble its chance based on how they are operating. They've done it historically as well. Um, I don't know if you know much about the um, the Chinese treasure fleets. No, tell me about that. So this is, I'd have to check the year, but I think it was something like 14, 1500. Um, they had assembled this massive navy that was about to, you know, expand out into the world and could have ended up, you know, with China colonizing huge amounts. I mean, they might have got to America, you know, hundreds of years before the, the English did. Uh, but the ruling parties at the time got concerned about the rise of this merchant, merchant class mm. who could start to rival the emperor 
for power and influence. And so they shut the whole thing down and China retreated into itself for like 400 years. And when they finally reemerged, they went from being at the pinnacle of technology to suddenly what they ended up experiencing, what they called the century of humiliation, mm. where China, sorry, where, where uh, Britain, America, basically anybody who wanted to could stomp all over them and they couldn't do anything about it. Um, which, by the way, helps explain the massive chip on their shoulder that they have towards the rest of the world. So all these things are interconnected. Um, but it did massive damage to China to retreat into itself and and try and control and clamp down um, because to empower the individual is abhorrent in that culture. You just don't do it. You know, it's all mm. about the greater good. And unfortunately, that's often defined as the greater good of the ruling powers. Um, that's true everywhere, by the way. America does that too. Uh, they do it in different ways. There's still effectively aristocracy in America. They just don't call people dukes and lords and things like that, but no. it exists. Um, but ultimately, the power is not solely in the hands of the government, mm. which one could argue is better. It's, you know, you're always going to have oligarchs and lords and all this kind of thing. It's, it's the way of the world. But you could argue it's better for that to be separated from the governing powers than it is to be in the hands of private citizens. So that's what I'm curious about. Mm. Yeah, I have the same sort of um, sentiments or perspective around mm. India is that they will be the next. I don't know superpower. Like you said, there are so many issues they need to address internally. Mm. One thing that I did learn from an Indian guy um, who worked in IT. Um, of course was he did. That, um, before, the, before the British colonized um, India, I don't know if you know this, mm. but their class system weren't seen as something about, it wasn't seen as a hierarchy. Uh -huh. It was more seen as everyone had their role within the society and everyone played those roles. Sure. And you did, there wasn't any restrictions, at least from memory, like this was a conversation. It didn't mm -hmm. sound like there were any restrictions in terms of marrying into another class. Uh -huh. Like that all came about when the British took over. Like they wanted structure. They wanted people to be in power and so that they could take, you know, be in control of the, those mm -hmm. people in power. Yep. Um, and I guess the same thing can be said about Curry. <laughs> 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 like I was having this conversation with the same guy and he said he literally said to me that's why when you go to like if you come to New Zealand or if you go to the UK um, curry has cream in it oh sure he said, yeah he said yeah. In, in India we don't add cream no <laughs> sure yeah. and so it's, it's just like this this colonization um back in the day has you know again going back to what we were saying earlier about U.S. and U.K. tampering in politics overseas, right? Mm -hmm. And like that's what happened in India. And I think, I think they're finding their way back, but I think the class system is really hindering them, right? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is broader principles of of liberalism. Um, even people like, um, oh gosh, was it Adam Smith? You know, and the um, Wealth of Nations mm -hmm. found out one of the founding documents of, <coughs> excuse me, of capitalism. He identified that slavery is a really bad idea, even from just a purely economic standpoint, even if you don't want to look at it from a moral point of view, because you are, it's a bad way to motivate people and a bad way to get productivity out of people. So mm -hmm. it's better to have free people making free choices and being rewarded accordingly than being forced by some kind of a social construct that that makes people do that kind of stuff. So broadly speaking, freedom is better for wealth creation than, you know, it's, it's more efficient, shall we say, which is not to say that countries throughout history have not used slaves. Of course they have. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a, it's a very modern insight that actually maybe slavery is a bad way to go. And also the moral dimension to that as well. Um, so when it comes to India, the freer that they can be from a, economic perspective that is better and again this is just a purely cynical thing to say well what you want is the most skilled people having the freedom to move up and down you know to 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 be able to receive opportunity and move accordingly 
makes more sense than saying, let's restrict the pool of talent to a very small number of people who are very immobile. One mm-hmm. of those systems is better than the other one. So I, I, I don't know. I'd want to know more about what, how, how flexible Indian culture really was um, before that. Um, I mean, it may well be true that, that the English kind of entrenched the class system even further. Uh, but even if that is true, the, the challenge for India today is then to say, okay, look, um, it serves a certain group of people really, really well. Yeah. And that is true. Again, whenever you have wealth and power systems that absolutely do exist all over the world, there's always a group of people who it serves really, really well, and it's in their best interests to maintain that. So mm. you would need some kind of remarkable external stimuli Whatever that might be, again, black swan territory. I don't know what it could look like. Uh, there could be some you know, massive world event that shakes this stuff up. Often wars also help rebalance um, severe inequality. So that could happen, whether or not it directly involves India or somebody else. Um, but that is what would be required to shake something up like that. And then, of course, again, you know, India has massive inequality already. But when you have as many people as they do, from speaking from a purely cynical point of view, you could sort out only one-fifth of the population and you'd have more people than the US already. Like they're 1.3 billion people, something like that. It's a crazy amount. Their birth rate, I think, is still serviceable by world standards. Like China's has fallen through the floor. America's fallen through the floor. Mm. So you're in an okay position in that respect. But who knows? Who knows? Uh, it's very common for people in power to then, you know, say all the right things to get themselves to that position. And then once they're there, suddenly like, oh, actually, I've suddenly realized that you should all be in the salt mines after all. Sorry about that. Bye. Wow. Yeah. Like I said, Liz Trust, right? Says all the, kind of says all the right things. But there's there's a movement in, the, in Europe right now. I don't know if you know this, but um, a lot of elections are leaning right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, do you know why that is? I, I don't. Um, I mean, I could, I could speculate. Mm. Broadly speaking, you have seen a very open borders, um, pro-immigration movement in a lot of places. Um, one thing that is very unpolitically correct to say is that there are certain parts of the world where cultural values do not overlay perfectly with other cultural values. Mm-hmm. And treatment of women, women is one of those things. For example, if you're from Iran and you are as an, a, a Muslim cleric from Iran, chances are you do not have typical Western post-enlightenment views on the role of women in society. Mm. That's not a, a moral judgment. That's just saying that is the way it is, man. Like if you... Grew up as a grew up in the ocean. You're probably a fish. So, if you take this guy from Iran who grew up in that environment, and then you say, "All right, you're going to live here now," and what you think he's just going to suddenly be like, "Oh, okay, I'm on the land now. I guess I'm going to, you know, behave differently." No, no, no. You are a product of that environment. You carry those values, those beliefs, whatever it might be. Now, in a lot of these European countries, like I know Sweden, for example, um, they've had massive problems with surges of crime that are connected to the recent immigrant community. Now, are some people using that for xenophobic and racist attacks on people? Yes, they are. Mm. There is absolutely an opportunistic dimension to this, but is there also an empirical uh, thing that you can track of crime that is connected to the new immigrant communities they have? Yes, there is. So, when you're talking about the right-wing communities, they tend to be the ones that are saying, well, actually, we need to put our own people first and preserve what we have. You can't just bring anybody in here. And they, these people have been dismissed as being racists and uh, you know xenophobes in the past. Mm. Um, and again, I would say there probably are elements of that who are, like, sure. But there is a legitimate, I think, at least a legitimate case to be answered that said, well, if these are your values and you look at the country where someone's coming in from... It's very easy to say, oh, no, no, I totally, I believe the same things that you guys do. Uh, And then, you know, you let me into the country and then suddenly I'm like, right, well, now that I'm here, I want Sharia law. Uh, (laughs) And that's actually happened. Like, that's not 
it sounds really stupid and tongue in cheek, but that's actually absolutely happened. There are parts mm. communities in the UK yeah. um, that are asking for that. There's communities in France that are asking for that. Um, they want to be their own little independent hamlet where they govern themselves based on their own laws. And I think it's completely reasonable to say, no, get stuff. This is the way we do things. And if you don't like it, yeah. you're out on your ass. But of course, they can't do that. You know, they've let everybody in. And there's been a, um, what would you call it? Uh, a deliberate blindness, perhaps, from some of the social, the negative social impacts that that's caused. Mm. And so you create fertile ground for someone to come along and say, all right, let's be honest here. This is causing us a massive problem. Uh, maybe there are better ways to integrate immigrate, immigrants into those communities as well. That could be something worth thinking about. But to try and pretend that you can open up your borders, let anybody in from anywhere in the world, and it's all going to be completely fine is naive at the very best and catastrophic at worst. So you look at what's happened in Italy just recently, you know, and this tirade against international forces trying to control what happens in their own country um, and that being labeled as fascism. Um, which is interesting. I've seen recordings from opposition parties to the new government in Italy, even saying that, look, we, we don't agree with everything from this new party, uh, but they're mm. not fascist. That's just, no. you know, that's not true. Um, so I think that's been a, a major aspect of that. And just a loss of sovereignty. Again, um, if things are going great, then everything's fine. But mm -hmm. if, you know, suddenly things turn badly and you can say, well, it's the EU's fault, um, we'd be great if it wasn't for those guys. It's a pretty powerful argument. You might be wrong. You might be wrong, but it's a pretty damn strong argument to people who are like saying we're being screwed over. Is it our fault or somebody else's fault? Human nature is generally pretty good at saying, ah, clearly someone else's fault. Yep. Yeah. It's, um, I'm going to tie this to a video that I watched earlier. I don't know if yep. you watched, <laughs> if you watched the video from Abba and Preacher recently about it. Which one? <laughs> the school teacher. Oh, with the fake, yeah, the fake yeah. boobs. Yeah, Just, yeah, like one of the things that came out of that video, right, was the school is more concerned about what other people are going to say about the mm. school than they're actually concerned about what the kids and what the parents are saying about mm. that teacher's um, behavior or the way sure. that she conducts herself at school. Yeah, which you know speaks a lot to what you were saying earlier about. You know, whether a community moving into a foreign land and mm. then basically demanding for, you know, to change ways to their way so that they, you know, they can be accommodated. And then yep. the government can't say no, otherwise it will be, as you said, seen as xenophobic. Sure. Um, it's just, yeah, the way that the world is going right now is, it's hilarious, but at the same time, it's shocking. Yeah. I mean, the world's always been going to hell, though. Like, <laughs> if you if you look at the, um, what would you call it, the arc of history, that it's been forever. People saying, "I can't believe things are the way they are right now. This is the worst it's ever been." Mm. And the weird paradox to that is that people's standards of living, especially in the last hundred years or so, have got so much exponentially better. It would blow your mind. Like, if you don't know yeah. about this stuff, check out places like um, Our World and Data has amazing information on this. Uh, humanprogress.org, I think it is, is another place that has some of this. Admittedly, you could say some of it's cherry-picked. And again, it doesn't mean that everything is better everywhere at all times. But we've had this narrative of the world's getting worse, the world's getting worse, the world's getting worse. And yet, it's got better, it's got better, it's got better, it's got better. What does that mean? Well, it tells me that we have a very strong negative negativity bias. Mm. Um, we we want to believe that things are getting worse and then we find the evidence that it is and then we run with that. Um, it's not to say that these don't create storms, you know, social, uh, civil, political, whatever, that need to be resolved. Um, but I'm, I'm maybe a little more optimistic in the broad sense, in the big picture sense, only because, again, this is not new. That, mm. oh my gosh, I can't believe this thing is happening. This is the worst thing there's ever been. Um, possibly. Uh, <laughs> But again, we've heard this before. Um, I guess one day someone's got to be right and it's going to be the end of the world and well done to that person. Uh, but until then, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just not freaking out. Mm. Yeah. 
I'll tell you what though, coming looking at it from a from a designer's perspective as well. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but human beings, we tend to not remember things that work. Mm. We tend to remember the things that don't work. So when you oh, look at sure. an, yeah, yeah, you yeah. look at an app and mm. you're scrolling through and the user experience is seamless, mm. you forget about the app because you just yep. go about it because it works. Yep. But when something is, you know, shit. And yeah. then you're just going, I can't get anything done. Mm. Fuck this app. Like, what is yeah. going on? Yeah. And it's just like, okay. So we tend to focus on the negatives because yeah. with, like you said, when things are, you know, when we're all holding hands and saying, saying kumbaya, everything is great. Mm. But when shit hits the fans, like, oh, actually, no, no, everything's mm. not great. And then you start, you start looking for more shit and it's sort of like, it's a, mm. it's a trap, man. I mean, look, the, there's a great opportunity and also a great challenge in all of that. Um, the the challenge is that you only need one thing to go wrong in your life to be miserable. You know, you you live you live. You know, speaking for ourselves, we live in New Zealand in 2022. Like, man, did we hit the human jackpot? Look at look at any other time in history and so many other places in the world. You could live in Ukraine right now. You could live in Russia right now. Mm. You could live in Angola right now. Like, you know, and imagine if you lived in Angola in 1825, in 1386, right? Like, I mean, game over. Good luck getting past 10 years old, right? And so here we are in New Zealand in 2022 and we're all miserable. Mm. Like, people want to make an argument for the unprecedented air quotes. I'm doing air quotes, everyone. It's the audio version air quotes. The unprecedented year that we've had. Every year is unprecedented. Like there's been there's been international pandemics before. Mm. By definition, that's what a pandemic is. So to be like, oh, the pandemic, it's taken an undue toll. It's like, no, we've been through pandemics before. It's it's happened before. We've done this before. Wars. Oh my gosh, war uncertainty. We could all get exploded. Da, da, da. No, that's that's happened before. So all this to say, to look at where we live today and to be miserable and despondent. I mean, as a function of us having very bad mental health practices and fixating on one negative thing or two negative mm. things and also focusing on stuff that's well beyond our circle of control mm. stuff that we can only be aware of and do nothing about um the opportunity is that you literally only need one thing in your life to be happy as well like your brain can't really multitask multitasking is a myth if you have one major narrative <laughs> and that is my god i'm so fortunate to live in 2022 where my biggest problems are what? Like, what's our biggest problem? Oh, no, my, my power bill is getting really high. Yep, I get it. Like, if you live in Europe, that sucks. Cool. Should we go back to, like, 1920? Is that better? Do you want that? Do you want to live in 1920? Is that what you prefer? Like, yes, it's hard. Yes, it sucks. Life has always sucked. Like, look at human history. We have died in fields and in caves and in rivers and in mud huts and mm. in storms and in tornadoes and in whatever stampeding bison for thousands of years of our history and here we are living indoors with electric light and saying oh my god this is so difficult like i no i just don't see it like you just need to study history a little bit get a bit of perspective um yeah imagine you were a 12 year old girl growing up in mongolia uh in the eighth century like no 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 don't be coming at me telling me how how bad things are um i just i have no time for it hmm well, it's, yeah, it is, it is that whole people unable to change their mindset, right? Like I, I mentioned to this, mm. this to you maybe like two, three weeks ago about a friend who, you know, she was telling me, man, I just don't know what I want to do in my life. Mm. Um, and I said to her, isn't that just beautiful? And she's like, <laughs> what yeah. the hell are you talking about? It's like, right. well, like, you don't know what you want. That means you have, you know, you have everything that you can do. Like you can do literally anything and yeah. that will still matter. Yeah. Right. Anything yeah. will matter. And yeah. she just can't see it. She's like, no, but I, I don't know where to start. It's like, it doesn't matter. You just, you just start. It's right. just. Right. But towards the end of that conversation, it was just, she still didn't get it. She was still sort of like, mm. no, I, I have nowhere to go. It's like, mm. bro, come on. <laughs> yeah yeah well like, we've talked about this before i think actually the last time i was on with um the two of you we talked about this that you know your thinking creates your experience of life that that 
one sentence has so much more depth in it than you think it does. If you think you understand that line right now, listening to this, you don't. Because if you really did, I mean, I know I don't. I tell you this stuff all the time and yet I'm reminded again and again Mm. if I really understood how much my thinking is creating my experience of life, not just reacting to it, learning how to deal with it, but my own thoughts of like, you know, my own abundance, um, my own value. um, What does failure mean? What does Mm. success mean? Uh, All those kind of things. My, my thinking is creating that dynamic for me. And if it, if the result is paralysis, then my thinking is the problem because we live in 2022, literally the most abundant period of time in human history. So that is the opportunity to recognize that. And then you can, again, train yourself to be grateful. That's why the reason I talk about history, by the way, is that this is one of the things that I found most helpful for me to break me out of that potential self-pitying kind of thing. Um, Here's a a stupid little example, but I literally, this happened to me maybe eight years ago. I had a knee injury when I was doing some, uh, like a uh, boot camp, you know, one of those outdoor fitness boot camps, right? Had a knee injury. Mm. It was pretty bad at the time. Had to go to osteophysio, blah, 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 blah. It was a pain to work through the whole process. And I suddenly thought, man, imagine I'd done that in like 1800. I'd just be the dude with a limp for the rest of my life. Mm. I, I I needed to get, I got laser vision correction a number of years ago. Any other time in history, I'm just a guy who can't see. Like before the invention of spectacles, you know, 1200, <laughs> I'm just a dude who can't see with a limp. Mm. Wicked. Jackpot. I'm dead. I'm, that's it. Game over. GG. Thanks for coming. Take my stuff. Like, yeah. you know. So to look at history and then to look at today, I think, can be a way of at least learning how to see the abundance that's all around you. But it is a it's a muscle you need to work as well. It's also, you know, giving you a sense of gratitude. Yeah. And yeah. there's actually another perspective that I heard the other day. Um this guy on TikTok was talking about it. He said, imagine you're in your imagine you're 85 years old mm-hmm. and you get this one chance to go back to your 30 year old self. Mm-hmm. And you wake up in your 30-year-old body, like what would be the thing that you'd be grateful for? Mm. Right? You would be grateful for, oh my goodness, I have a functioning body. I can actually walk. Yeah. I've got good eyesight. Yeah. My family's next to me. I'm living in, you know, sunny, well, right now, sunny Auckland. Sure. And I've got a bed. I've got food. I'm yep. not eating 3D printed meat. No, <laughs> yeah. All that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you're eating actual meat. And so yeah. that's another way of actually framing that as well. Is like, yeah, if, like if you were 85 years old and then you look back mm. at yourself and you go, well, what can I be grateful for in this moment that my 85 year old self would say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, the power of that is that nothing in your current circumstances has changed, right? To have that insight, but your thinking has changed. Therefore, your experience of life has changed. Um, you reminded me of a proverb. I, I can't, this is a paraphrase of it, but it's something like, um, a healthy person wants many things, mm. but a sick person wants only for one thing. Yeah. I was like, man, like that is so legit, so legit, so insightful about the human condition. So, you know, when I look at everything that is happening internationally, we talk about like India and China and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, well, look, I can't control what Vladimir Putin does. There's literally nothing that I can do about that. No. And I don't think it's irresponsible to say, I'm just not going to think about it because I can't do anything about it. Like that's mm. the the wheels, the wheels that I would have needed to put in motion to influence that started moving twenty years ago. Mm. Um, but I can start making choices today because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and I can start moving towards the future that I want, the person that I want to be. And who knows? Maybe twenty years from now, I'm in a position to influence whoever the next Vladimir Putin might be, because there will be one. Um, mm. That is the way of the world. Uh, but at least I can make choices for myself today that are abundant and inspired and move me towards something more powerful than a sense of despair, even though I live in literally the best, have I said that enough today? Literally the best time to be alive in human history. Yeah. And look, just going back to what you're saying about, you know, things out of our control and just linking it with my current experiences of Mm. finding a job. Sure. I, I think one of the things that I that has sort of humbled me or, or reminded me during this whole experience is 
you can send out as many applications as you can. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, people make those choices whether or not you join them. And that is yeah. outside of your control. Yeah. But it is also what you do with those opportunities. So mm. as you know, with it's almost like coming full circle. Um, but as you know, like when I first started um, interviewing with this sort of three-month contract company, right? Like mm. it sounded great. Everything was going well. And then very last day of the whole negotiation, basically it was just sort of like, Hey, we just, we Mm. decided that we're going to change our tactic. And as a part of that, your collateral or your position is collateral. And so in that moment I could have just gone give up and say, why is Uh, the world treating me like this? Or I could have taken that opportunity and say, okay, you're looking for a short term person to fill in the gap. Um, are you offering me that position? Mm. Yeah. And just so happens they were happy to take on that, um, I guess that negotiation. And mm-hmm. they were also happy to provide me with the same benefits with the same compensation that I, yeah. that I had in the previous negotiation. Yeah. And so understanding that, you know, there, there are so many things outside of your control in life. And like, like you, I, I need to repeat my mind of that every day. But if you are able to focus on your circle of influence, as you said, yeah. mm. then things will start slowly getting, you know, start slowly getting better and better by, by the day. Yeah. Um, it's, rather yeah. than focusing on all the chaos that's surrounding us already. Yeah. It's, I mean, the idea of a, a, a an internal or external locus of control is a very well-established idea in, in mental health circles that people who have an external locus of control who fixate on the things outside of them feel mm. weak and powerless um, and those who focus on an internal one. And just to clarify too for people, what I'm saying here is even things like what can you control, what you control, your attitude, your emotions, your thinking, your actions, that's stuff that you can control, but you can't control what another person does. Um, and the other thing that came to mind actually when you were sharing that story, Alan, is that one of the reasons I've developed an appreciation for martial arts in the last few years that I never had previously was that I think martial arts are a much better picture of the real world than we want to admit because martial arts acknowledges that conflict is an essential part of life. And for most of us, that one observation, that one insight is shocking and horrifying to people that Mm. that there is conflict in life. No, there shouldn't need to be any conflict. Why should there be conflict? No, there's no reason for conflict. Cool. Good luck. Like, all right, if you say so, you're going to get taken for the rest of your life Mm. like because conflict is real. There is some people have a sense of scarcity and no matter how abundant you are, they will try, they will behave driven by scarcity, which could mean what? Well, in a business context, it could mean that, you know, contract negotiations, are you know, you get snaked on something or somebody tries to undercut you or whatever it is. Um, In the real world, somebody might literally try and punch you in the face to take your stuff. Um, Martial arts acknowledges that that is not an aberration. That is, that there is an element of life that is conflict and a potential mm. for for violence, um, be it physical or, like I say, the the principle crosses over to social or something like that. But it also says that just because you got punched in the face doesn't mean you give up. Like you go into a ring expecting you're going to take a hit. But mm-hmm. I'm going in there to win. So what does that mean? There's going to be a struggle, but I will win because I prepared and I know what to do. And if I think about your work experience, Alan, the first time you get punched in the face, you kind of freak out. Like, oh God, I've just been like, oh, what do I do? Like, uh, it's, this, this isn't supposed to happen. No, this is wrong. No, nobody should be doing this to me. But the next time you get in the ring, you go, wait a minute. So at some point, he might not, but there's a good chance this guy's probably going to throw up my face. And I've learned that if he does that, I do this. Oh, cool. There's that move. All right. This is how I counter. And so in this employment situation, you know, you got punched in the face and you went, whoa. Like I remember when it first happened, you're like, what the hell? Like this is bullshit. Like, come on. Mm. And then you go, well, actually, hang on a minute. This this happens. Like, you know, it's not up to me. I can't control the punches he throws. But if he does, this is how I might counter. And now you have that tool for the rest of your life. Yeah. You have that tool that says, Again, Black Swan, you didn't know exactly how he was going to do something. He might not punch you in the face. He might try and kick you in the balls. I don't know. But when he does, you'll either take it in the balls or you'll be like, oh, 
this move. Okay, this is how I counter. And that's kind of how you go through life. That, that to me is a much more, um, it's a much better analogy, I think, especially even for younger people to say, look, life is, life is about uh, competition. You either lean into the competition and learn how to fight or you're the kid who takes one stray shot and then runs to the corner and goes like, oh, I can't believe it. I got hurt. Like, okay, fine. But you're, you're still a loser in the corner. Like, what do you want? You've got compassion. You've got sympathy and nothing. Like, that's what you've got. You've got people mm-hmm. going like, oh, poor you. Yes, that must really hurt. That's a real shame. And I know this is coming across like super hard here, but this is coming from somebody who was bullied a lot when he was in high school. So I'm not coming from a completely abstract place here. But people will pity you and they'll, they will have sympathy for you, but no one will respect you mm. and nobody will give you anything because you don't have the strength to fight for it. So that is what I think about with this kind of stuff. You know, you're entering in the arena to try and get one of these highly valuable, high paying jobs. Cool. Well, you think they're just going to give it to you because you're a nice guy? Like, no, but you can fight, you can win and then you can secure it. And once you have the skills to do that, you can build on them and compete as high as you want to compete yeah sounds like you got your next book ready to go (laughs) yeah what do i call it get in the ring get in the ring baby Mm. well it's like that um was it teddy roosevelt quote that famous thing about uh you know the man in the arena Mm. you know that one no i don't um i'll tell you what i'll i'll find it now i think Brene brown made a um um big thing about it okay uh here we go ah yes yeah teddy roosevelt here we go um it's not the critic who counts it's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better the credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly who errs who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but he who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms the great devotions who spends himself in a worthy cause who at the best knows in the end, the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who never know victory nor defeat. Mm. Yep. Daring greatly, right? Yep. That's the one. I think that is a beautiful way to end that. That wraps up our, our guest spot today. Hey, my pleasure. Oh, that was great. Well, thank you for your time, Andrew. And I think we'll probably see you not often, but whenever, whenever yeah, sure Caleb we. is unable to, you might be able to fill in. My pleasure. No, no problem at all. Thanks for thanks for having me. And um I hope Caleb's um able to join the convo maybe next time as well. Yeah, we'll see. He's he's a busy man. That's right. We're all busy, man. We're all busy. Yeah. All right. Thank all you right. everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.